Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Today, we'll be chatting with the Speaker of the Assembly, Jason Frierson. Reporter Michelle Rendells is here to help with some of the questions. And as always, we'll close with some to and fro on issues of the day between myself and the Indies managing editor, Elizabeth Thompson. It's always spirited. A reminder, if you like us, rate us on iTunes and Google Play and Stitcher. Tell your friends, even tell your enemies, tell people you see on the street. We appreciate it. Let's get started first with my recap of some of the week's headlines from the Nevada Independent. The week began, as Riley Snyder reported, with state utility regulators approving a voluminous report that raised serious questions about the impact of the Energy Choice Initiative. The report from Public Utilities Chair Joe Reynolds had sparked outrage from supporters of the initiative. will only amplify those who say the PUC is Envy Energy's handmaiden. A switch executive even went so far as to accuse the utility of, quote, raping Nevada. And it's only May. Michelle reported on former Congressman Stephen Horsford scoring the Culinary Union's endorsement after buying into the union's assault on Big Pharma. The culinary staying out of the big races using its usual excuse of being in contract negotiations. But Horsford is one of their own, and the union's power in a Democratic primary is unmatched. Just ask Congressman Reuben Keewen. The Clark County School Board picked a new superintendent this week, as Jackie Valley reported, and they did it the way they do most things, in a totally embarrassing way. They squabbled, they yelled behind closed doors, they openly rejected one candidate, and approved the new guy, Orlando Schools exec Jesus Jara, on a split vote. And one trustee, Linda Young, abstained. Yes, she abstained on the most important vote of the year. Appointed school boards? Who's with me? Finally, Megan Messerly reported on an audit of grants awarded by the Department of Health and Human Services that showed an outrageous $870,000 in overstated personnel costs. This is why people lose faith in government and why it's so hard to get funding for needed programs from lawmakers, who surely, at least some of them, will point to this to say, say no to needed programs. And so, the cycle continues. There's a lot more to check out on the site, including our indie blog that has snippets of news you won't see anywhere else, including new ads in the governor's race. That's at the NevadaIndependent.com. We'll be back in a moment with Jason Frierson. We're back on Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent with our guest, Jason Frierson. Frierson was the Speaker of the Assembly last session. He returned to the legislature after rebounding from one of the biggest upsets in state history in 2014. He's worked as a public defender, deputy DA, and deputy AG. Speaker Frierson, welcome to Indy Matters. Thank you for having me. So I know you want to talk about education. Uh, that you, 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 you mentioned to me yesterday that, that you have some new approaches you want to talk about. Uh, we need new approaches? Well, I think that we need some direction, and and the education has been in the news a lot, and I think teachers in particular, leading up to Teacher Appreciation Week, deserve to know where uh, the state's leaders plan on taking them. And so, 
talk about uh, uh, when you talk about direction, is that because you think that the legislature is in the past? And even uh, though, though you haven't been there uh, for decades, uh, you've watched it uh, as a lobbyist. You've, you've seen it. Uh, has it been directionless in the past, do you think? I don't think it's been directionless. We have some unique challenges. We have an e- economy that is comprised of gaming and mining and uncertainties. Uh, we don't have a state income tax that most states rely on to fund education. And so it's an ongoing challenge to make sure that we provide uh you know, a, a quality education for our kids. Uh, but when we are time after time ranking behind Mississippi, uh, we certainly have to do something. And I think uh, now there's no better time than now. So the headline from this podcast is Frierson proposes state income tax for Nevada. Uh, of course not. Of course <laughs> I, I, not. I, I kid, but 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 you said we have to do something. You know, listen, I, I've been around way way too long, uh, and and I always hear we have to do something. You know, our kids deserve better. Our teachers deserve better. What is something? Well, I, I think that you're, you're right. We have talked about needing to do something for a long time, well, without putting any detail or any teeth in it, and so. Uh, I, I have been working along with my colleagues in the assembly uh, to make sure that we come up with some ideas that actually make some changes. Uh, there are several things that I think that we can and should do uh, and look at as a priority for, for next uh, legislative session. And one of those things is creating a rainy day fund uh, for public education. Uh, I recall back in 2009 there being an effort and uh, you know, the, the the policy called for any surpluses in uh, the funds set aside for education uh, to go towards education. Uh, that effort was not successful. And quite frankly, over the last several years, we have not had a surplus. But just think, if we if we would have done this 20 years ago, we would have a healthy rainy day fund so that our education system could sustain, uh, you know, this past recession. So I think that revisiting that and creating a rainy day fund so that when we do have a surplus, we set it aside and keep it there um, in anticipation of any future recessions. So the way that that would work would be that, that, that uh, if there was a shortfall in, in any education needs, that this money could only be used for that? Absolutely. If there's a shortfall in anything that we deem necessary and appropriate for uh, providing quality, you know, public education that we would have a fund. Uh, this past uh, several years with the real estate uh, bubble, we had a significant decrease in revenue coming from property tax. And had we had a rainy day fund, we would have been able to absorb that without uh, significant cuts. And I think it's a prudent thing to do. It's a long-term plan. It's going to have to gradually be implemented, like a lot of policies, but it's something that we need to do uh, for the future. Before I let Michelle jump in and and ask some questions here, is there any other uh, concrete proposals such as that one that you have that you want to talk about? Yes. uh, I I think that we need to continue to have a conversation about designating funding within the the distributed school account for uh, teacher and support staff salaries is something that we have to have a conversation about. Uh, we built in a, a 2%, what we call a 2% roll up in anticipation of possible raises. That's probably not enough. And we probably need to look at increasing that. Uh, we need to look at making sure that we have funding designated for that purpose. Uh, that's one thing. I think uh, last session we uh, designated the 10% tax on recreational marijuana. Uh, I think the public um, has been misinformed because of the way we had to do it, uh, that that didn't go towards education. It did, but I think that it would be a strong policy statement to put that in statute to say that it must. So that's something else I think we need to look at. Uh, I think uh, there's been a lot of attention on uh, the, the previous uh, IP1 and the fact that we have revenue from uh, room tax that was intended to go towards education uh, that has not. And you know, we had a recession. 
And so we have started to recover from that, significantly recover from that. And although it might have to be gradual, it's time that we start to use that money uh, in the way that voters intended for it to be used, and that is to supplement uh, the public school account, uh, the, the, the public school fund, the DSA. And then lastly, uh, and not lastly overall, but uh, what we're talking about in anticipation of next week is replenishing um, the $10 million that was set aside for teacher incentives. Uh, last session, that was uh, proposed to be cut to $2.5 million. Uh, we were able to negotiate to get it back up to $5 million, but it was only for new teachers and transferring in teachers. I think we need to replenish that back up to $10 million and include not only new and transferring in teachers, but we need to acknowledge the teachers that have stuck it out in our most uh, challenged schools. So, Michelle, he's given us a lot now to, to, to follow up on. But before Michelle follows up on a letter, I promise I'm going to let Michelle in. But let's, I just want to be clear on this. Are, are these Speaker Frierson's ideas? Are these, are these Assembly Democratic Caucus ideas? Where are these coming from? I think that this is, for me, a reflection of where I would like to lead my caucus. Okay. I have spoken with my caucus about these principles. Uh, I, I know I'm confident that the Senate's doing the same thing and coming up with some ideas. I am looking forward to joining them and bringing all of our ideas together. But I do think that in light of the, the education being in the news and the uncertainty, a new superintendent. Again, I think teachers deserve to know that we take it serious and we're planning on making some moves to create a stable environment uh, for teachers moving forward. Uh, so you mentioned the marijuana tax. Senator Tick Sagerbloom a couple weeks ago uh, held a press conference saying we need to have a special session. Um, the governor said no to that idea. You guys have the, the power to call yourselves into session. Is that something that needs to happen? Well, first of all, the, the, the reason that someone would call for a special session uh, with regard to the 10 percent uh, marijuana tax uh does not actually acknowledge that we actually did fund education with that 10%. We didn't fund it on the front. Uh, we moved that money into the general fund, and then by the end of session, put general fund money in the exact same amount uh, back into education. So calling us into special session for that purpose, uh, we've actually already accomplished that uh, by the end of legislative session. Look, I am prepared to stand next to the governor if the governor calls for a special session. Uh, the governor's uh, announced that he doesn't see a need for it right now. Uh, while technically we have the authority as a legislature to call ourselves in a special session, it takes a two-thirds vote. Not only does it take a two-thirds vote to call us in, but it takes a two-thirds vote to get anything done. So uh, I'm not going to engage in rhetoric and gamesmanship for this. We're not having a special session as it stands right now. And uh, I think that we need to get ready for 2019. And this is, I think, a step in that direction. So you're not whipping up those two-thirds votes at this point? Well, I, I don't think the two-thirds votes are there. Um, you talked about um, the IP1 room tax. Obviously, the budget has become, the general fund has become dependent to some extent on that money. How do you how do you wean the general fund off that? How do you backfill that? Well, the reality is I think that we have been um, making allocations out of that money that um, programs weren't necessarily entitled to. We, we had to make adjustments when we had a recession. And, and that's why I say that this is another one of those things that uh, represents a gradual adjustment. I think if over time we start to use that money uh, more consistent with what, the way the voters intended, um, any adjustment in the Constitution or, or a, 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 an assembly resolution that might send us in that direction, uh, by then we will have already started making uh, moves to use it in that way, and it won't be such a Band-Aid being ripped off. But we, we need to, to look at how we're using it and I think um, start to use it in a way more consistent with the will of the voters. Does that mean cutting 
programs or do you think there's enough economic growth to backfill things? Well, I certainly hope that there's going to be enough economic growth. Um, you know, that would be a dream world. I don't necessarily anticipate that being the case. So we have some tough decisions to make. And let's not acknowledge, let's not fail to acknowledge other shortcomings. I mean, when we have state employees that are on public assistance, that's a problem. These are a, a lot lot of things that we need to look at and use the resources that we have uh, as responsible as, as responsibly as we can and as consistent as we can with the will of the voters. Uh, but we have some tough decisions to make. So Clark County School District had a, had a large, you know, budget shortfall they, they've been dealing with over the past few months. Um, and, and there's been times when they blame the state for, for not doing enough. Is that criticism warranted or are there things people are leaving out of that? Well, I, I, I think that historically, as a state, we definitely need to do better. I'm, I'm not going to pass the buck and say that we have always done right by public education. I don't think that we have. Uh, but I also don't think that uh, the school district has help the cause either. And there have been, uh, you know, issues with numbers that uh, they present and we find out that they're not exactly accurate and they have to redo numbers. Um, I think that we have to continue to look at those numbers and make sure that they're being responsible with the resources. Uh, But they are also going through not only a change in leadership, but a a really expansive reorganization that's complicated and difficult to implement. So I want to be patient with them, uh, but we can't wait forever. And I think now is the time to to, to start to look at that. Mm -hmm. And your plan to do this rainy day fund specifically for education, uh, would that be, I mean, would Clark County's current situation qualify for that type of fund under your your plan? Well, I certainly think so. The, the, the reality is uh, the rainy day fund would be there uh, as a safety measure for unanticipated shortfalls. So uh, at the end of the day, the state is responsible for providing public education for all of our kids. And that is the point. That is the goal. I think Washoe County is also experiencing a shortage. And uh, had we done this again 20 years ago, we'd be able to better absorb it. So there are years in the last several years where there hasn't been a surplus, but in the years that there is a surplus, we need to be committed uh, to setting that aside and, and, and saving it for, for future rainy day issues. Are you supportive of rainy day funds in general? I mean, we've got this one building up with the marijuana funds. I think everyone's looking at it, right. you know, salivating over the money. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, in, in general, I am supportive of, uh, of rainy day. Uh, as my, my colleague, Assemblywoman Maggie Carlton, always says, you can't put money in, the, in, in your bank account until you, pay, you feed your kids. So we have bare necessities that we need to provide for. So we're not going to just put money away uh, without making sure that our needs are met. But I think it's a responsible way to prepare for the future. You know, it's interesting. Uh, you, you you clearly want to talk about this, as you said in the run-up, teacher appreciation week. You want to say, listen, this time we're, we want to do, we want to take it in a specific direction. We want to do specific things. Uh, I want to talk, go back to, 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 to what is what we've been referring to as IP1, which a lot of people listening to this podcast, they may not know the history of that. I'm going to give you a brief mm-hmm. history uh, of that. Uh, that was that, that stands for an initiative petition. It was an initiative petition that was passed by the voters and uh, that used room taxes. It was supposed to go to education. You had to get the whole gaming industry on board uh, for this. It's like pulling teeth to take any of their room tax money. But the gaming industry reluctantly agreed as long as it was going to go to education. And this is emblematic of the problem, I think. Teachers, parents, a lot of people having faith in the legislature. It's before you, 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 you weren't there. You weren't the speaker when this occurred. However, what happened then, and, and uh, Michelle alluded to this, is that 
you went against, the legislature went against what was in that initiative petition, didn't earmark it for education, and used it to fill holes at the end. And so it's become totally corrupted. I think you'd definitely lose in a lawsuit if anyone, because the, the, the initiative petition was very specific. It said it has to go to education. So what do you do now? This, this is really the problem, I think, now in this state overall, is that people just don't have faith that you're going to keep the promises that you're making. Don't you think that's a real problem? I just gave that brief history to, because people need to know that there's been these promises. Money's going to go to education. We're going to do a rainy day fund for education. What's different now that people should believe you? Well, I think there are a couple of things that are different now. First of all, there's a recognition that while the the, the language in the initiative petition said that the money had to go towards education, what ultimately, well, first of all, at the beginning, it was allowed to be used. The first two years, the, the petition itself allowed the state to use money for other purposes. And after that, it was supposed to be right. designated solely for education. But then we had a recession right after that. And uh, we started using it as a state in a way inconsistent with that petition. Uh, I, I think that uh, the language, if we were going to make an adjustment, the adjustment would be that you can't say this money is for education and then turn around and take the same amount out of education uh, by making sure that this is used in a way that adds on top of what was determined to be necessary for education. I think that's uh, a distinction that we need to look at incorporating possibly by resolution so we can put that back before the people to clarify it. Quite frankly, the other thing that I think uh, is is a growing sentiment amongst my colleagues is we have to be prepared to give up some pork. This has been a fund that we have been able to draw from as an institution uh, to give away and to use in other purposes. And we have to be willing as leaders to give up the ability to do that so that we can use it in a way that's consistent with the will of the voters. I'm saying today that we have to start doing it. This is like, this would be analogous to, to Congress giving up earmarks, essentially, what you're referring to now. And, and when you talk about pork, if people know right at the end, what, what we've been around a while called like the Christmas tree at the end where all right. kinds of ornaments are put on it. Are you actually going to put in statute uh, to do something to, to prevent that from happening? Or are you going to... Are you going to just say this is it is the policy of the of, of, of the assembly that we will not allow this money to be used for special projects for districts? Well, at the very least, we're looking at making sure that we implement it in our policy and how we budget. Now, um, but I, I also think it's not a statutory provision. It's a constitutional provision. And we have to take into account if we're going to make a serious change to this, we have to do it in the Constitution. I'm just not willing to wait six years. And so we have to start to do something now. I think that we, it, it again, may be gradual. Um, you know, we have other, we have mental health needs throughout the state. We have other needs throughout the state that we can't decimate, but we have to start using this money in a way that uh, is more consistent with the will of the voters. And I, for one, and I, I believe that my colleagues uh, agree, it's a sacrifice that we as leaders have to make, give up some of that ability to use that money elsewhere um, to be consistent with the will of the voters. One more question before I let Michelle uh, jump in again. And you answered her. I thought very candidly when she asked you about whether you thought economic growth could pick up. I mean, that's it's not going to happen. There are some people who are running for higher office who are saying economic growth is going to pay for all kinds of things. It's just not. It's going to get eaten up by what are so-called roll-ups, roll-ups for education, more more kids, roll-ups for social services. That money is going to be gone. And and I, I don't I don't want to soundbite this, and I want to talk about this in, in 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 a deeper way, Mr. Speaker. But that always okay. You might have to raise taxes, uh, and that's always going to be. If you say on this podcast, yes, I think we have to raise taxes. That'll. Yeah. But to some extent, there's been no reasonable discussion of that. The IP one money should go to education. The roll ups are going to be eaten up. E economic growth, marijuana money, it's going to add some money, but that's not a panacea either. It's a relatively small amount of money. When are we ever going to have a serious discussion about funding the real needs, whether it's education? 
and mental health social services. I think that we have to, and we have to now. With all of the national conversations about uh, health care in particular, we're looking at having to absorb significant cuts if we're not ready. So we, we absolutely have to have the conversation. I, I agree that the, the chances of us just having an uptick in the economy, upwards of $400 million, is just not going to happen. And even if we raise the tax on recreational marijuana by a couple of percent, which I think would still keep us in a competitive uh, number with other states like Oregon and Washington and Colorado, that's still less than $100 million. And so uh, we are going to have to look at nickel and dime and some of those amounts. you know, but we have to assess our, our overall state's needs and come up with a way to meet those needs. And I, and I think that it's just going to take uh, some some self-reflection and some difficult decisions so that we can prioritize what our state's needs are. Nobody wants to cut any of these things. Um, but we have Nobody a, wants to raise taxes either. Nobody does. And we're going to have to be responsible. Um, I think that, you know, we're going to have to have a meaningful conversation. We have reinstituted the Southern Nevada Forum, and I think that is a significant source of ideas moving forward uh, about how we can, you know, help create a a stable business environment but provide for the community's needs because even they have to acknowledge they have families. Businesses that come here have families. We all have children that that go through that system, and and so we have to provide – for those those services, look, I I worked in criminal law for for over a decade, and I know when we don't, that's where you have an uptick in criminal criminal activity. That's you know the people that don't have an education and job opportunities are frequently also the people that ultimately end up engaging in criminal activity, and we pay for it one way or another. Southern Nevada Forum, in case people listening don't know what that is, and and I think this was started by your uh, uh, predecessor Marilyn Kirkpatrick and meeting with a bunch of business leaders in a regular uh, uh, way down here in Southern Nevada to try to get buy-in uh, before the session. Go ahead, Michelle. You know, we've we've taken some small steps toward implementing that weighted funding formula, but didn't go all in. Uh, I think the cost was $1.2 billion. I think that was maybe a, simply a biennium cost. We should explain probably a little bit to people who don't know what the weighted funded for, formula is. Yeah, and this form- is, uh, you know, applying a, an extra amount of funding for students when they have higher needs for some reason. So, you know, English language learners would get a portion more funding for each one of those students and it would follow the student as opposed to the school. Um, Are we going to move forward in that? Are we going to build on that in this coming session? Well, I think uh, the the weighted funding formula concept is is a great concept in that it does exactly what you just mentioned. It has money follow the kids and in particular following where those needs are are, are greatest. Um, I think that's also designed to improve performance so that we aren't ranking at the bottom. But, you know, we 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 have bare necessities that we're also not meeting. And so uh, when when we are, you know, have teachers that can't afford to to to, to staff their their, you know, provide supplies, for example, at a classroom. Um, it's nice to say that the money is otherwise following the student, but uh, we simply aren't doing enough. And uh, we, we're going to have to look at the whole education system aside from the state, you know, re- set of resources and prioritize our needs. And that's what we did this last session. We recognized in an ideal world, um, the weighted funding formula fully funded would be great. And it, it would probably yield some great results. Uh, but we have to you know, make some baby steps and make some progress and I think assess that progress and the effectiveness, effectiveness of it. Um, and then come back to look if you know look at whether or not we can provide more more funding. Yeah, and so there is some money flowing right now. I know they announced recently some some weighted money money that was being distributed. Right. But at this point, you can't commit that that would be we would build on that necessarily. Well, I'd like to. Uh, I mean, you know, I think that the effort to to build on that, um, you know, weighted funding is not something that was brand new in concept. It's something that was based on evidence uh, in other states. And so I think 
uh, we would like to certainly build on that and and focus more on putting money where uh, kids need it the most because that's where we get the best bang for our buck. Uh, Governor candidate Steve Sisolak has proposed, you know, reducing class sizes. And, and that's something that, you know, we spent $300 million of biennium reducing class sizes just for K through three. Right. And I think some of the, the bigger numbers that you're seeing with these classes are, are some of the upper grades. Um, do is that something the legis or the assembly is going to lead on? Or, or is there going to be more class size funding, class size reduction funding? Well, I think that that is a, a portion of what we're talking about uh, uh, generally when we're talking about increasing funding for for public education and within the DSA. I think uh, if we are able to pay teachers more, we keep teachers. If we're able to fund more positions, we decrease class sizes. This is not the only thing that I think we should be looking at. Uh, I think it'd be great to expand career technical academies to provide more options uh, for children and for families. Uh, I think that I would, that would also help in, in the higher grades with class size. So we need to look at all of this. Uh, and we have to just continue to reassess what is reasonably accessible to us as far as revenue is concerned. Uh, again, I don't think anyone would argue that we aren't funding education the way we should be. And we just have to continue to look for options. But I think for me, number one, the person who is spending more time with many of our kids than our parents, um, they need to be given the tools. And I, th I think everything grows from there. Uh, let me ask you a, a, a little bit about targeting funding. You've talked a little bit about it. I, I spoke to a, gr a group of uh, school administrators uh, uh, this week from all over the state. And, and and what they told me is that the biggest problem that they face now, besides the overall funding problem that they face, is they really feel like they're losing Mr. Speaker, losing the ability to retain and attract teachers. That it's becoming a much bigger problem than it ever has been. That it's becoming very close to a crisis in some of these areas uh, and maybe the urban and uh, rural areas. What can we do about that? Well, you know, I, I think that uh, several candidates have talked about this. At some point, we're going to have to revisit the Nevada plan and how we fund public education. Uh, it's it's an old plan. And 50 I, years old. It, and, and very little that we implemented 50 years ago. Uh, should exist without some adjustments. So I think we're going to have to look at how to adjust how we spend those resources. There's a constitutional mandate to to treat every child similarly, but the way that we get there is often confusing and not necessarily uh, clearly uh, accompl accomplishing that goal. So I think we have to be willing to look at the Nevada plan. Uh, it's a beast. It's, it's something that people are hesitant to look at because no one wants to look like they're taking away from an already underfunded, say, rural system where people have to travel hundreds of miles to school. But at some point, you know, we have to, um, you know, we have to look at that. And I think, you know, revisiting the Nevada plan and looking at what we have in front of us um, is going to be a good start. But, you know, there are no easy answers to this. There aren't any easy answers, but I think what, what's occurred in most sessions, not every session, is what I think people see, and, and I've written about this too, kind of small ball, Band-aids, or let's just get let's just get through it. And what these superintendents uh, 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 and, and and other administrators talk about is, we need to create a, a a culture here that really values education. That's the way that you're going to get teachers to stay. That's the way you're going to get uh, uh, te teachers to come here. Is there a way to do it? It's not going to happen overnight, but is there a way to change the nature of the conversation? Well, I think that we have to. When my grandparents moved here some 45 years ago. My, my grandmother was a substitute teacher, and teaching was a hobby that spouses did when their the other spouse was 
doing their main job. So I think that we have to look at it as a career. We have to look at it as a, a, a value part of this community that takes care of our children. Uh, we have to. I think that we're starting. I think that uh, the business community uh, is starting to understand that we need to do this both for you know public education sake in and of itself, but also so that they can expand um, and have a certain level of expectation for their families. Uh, it's starting. You know, the, the last thing that we want here are uh, you know, teachers that are, are looking at what other states are doing and strikes and, um, you know, taking that drastic step because they don't feel valued. So, again, what better week than next week to just reiterate to teachers that we do value them, we do get it, we do understand, and we are continuing to talk about options so that we can make sure that they yeah, have the tools. I don't think – I don't know a single teacher who engaged in that profession to get rich. Uh, they love their profession. They love the kids. And I think they just want the tools to do their job. And we have to continue trying to find ways to give them those tools. One of, uh, you know, Governor Candidate Steve Sisolak's proposals is to adjust the property tax formula. And, and I don't know if he says it in so many words, but the idea would be to increase revenue. Um, that proposal did not survive last session. Um, are you guys committing to do anything on the property tax caps? Well, I believe that that, well, first of all, I think dealing with the caps and the floor is not the same conversation as talking about raising property taxes. We certainly, in my opinion, need to look at creating a floor. Uh, last session, I think it was the the, the, the counties that brought forth a bill originally to raise taxes, uh, raise property taxes, what we amended that to do is to create that floor so that we don't go from, say, 3% to 0.3% and all of a sudden we can't pay for emergency rooms and our public schools. So I do think at some point it's worthwhile to say whatever year we're going to look at as an example, we need to set a floor and say that we can't sustain it dropping down to 0.2% so that we can't provide those needs. So I, I think that there's a willingness and uh, uh, interest in having a healthy conversation about that in the sake of stability. So we, we need to have that conversation before we start talking about uh, increases. Um, but, you know, these are, you know, our, our property tax structure is complicated. We have, you know, different amounts for corporate versus uh, residential, um, different ceilings. Uh, it, it's complicated. And it, it, again, is one of those things that I think, like the Nevada plan, we need to look at uh, simplifying and making it clear for, for taxpayers. Have any conditions changed that give you more hope this time that something would happen on the property tax front? Well, I, I would say that we're in an interesting political time where the makeup of both houses and the governor's office are going to have a significant impact on what direction we go. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, there's going to be a huge difference depending on who's in, in, the, in the governor's office. So, you know, we're going to have to be prepared. I'm certainly willing more than anybody I know in that building to work across the aisle and, and work with whoever I have to work with to get it done. Uh, you know, but uh, I... I I think that we have an opportunity and hopefully the, the, the thing that's different right now from last uh, session with respect to that issue is that property tax bill was rolled out as a tax increase. And once you ring that bell, no matter what you amend it to, you can't take that uh, that image off of it. So I think if we start off uh, with some policies to talk about stability, uh, we might certainly have a better shot at getting some some advances. Especially when you have the Senate Republican leader putting out a, a press release every day calling it a, 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 a tax increase. And I know Julia Ratty in the Senate has some has some ideas on that. Right. We only have a few minutes left, and I want to get to something that's kind of like, uh, for lack of a better cliche, the elephant in the room, and that is school choice. We're talking about school. School choice is still it's it's essentially just this. Uh, it's sitting there. 
It has no funding because of what the Supreme Court decided. There was a big battle last time. The governor didn't push it. It looked like there was an opportunity for a compromise in the assembly. It looked like you were going to – are are you going to – if Adam Laxalt becomes governor, he has pledged school choice. uh, Are are you willing to have that conversation? I'm willing to have a conversation about any policies. I think that we need to understand that vouchers is not the only way that we can provide school choice. I think that we would provide better school choice by creating more career and technical academies. A fully uh, matriculated uh, Korean technical school is going to move 3,000 students at a time. And I think that provides school choice. But that's a deflection of the discussion, isn't it, Mr. Speaker? I mean, what we're talking about, the school choice is is the ESAs, education savings accounts, is, is parents who are frustrated with their current situation getting a grant from the state, $5,000, to send their kids to private school. Will there be a real discussion of that? Uh, I, I think that the, the advocates for vouchers are going to be the the the, the the true decision makers about whether or not there's a conversation. We offered compromises. We offered ways that we could uh, discuss a sliding scale, make it need-based. At every single step, uh, it was all or nothing. And that's just not how you go. Needs-based is something that you think you could get enough votes in the assembly to pass? No. I don't think so, but I think that it's up to the advocates uh, to make their case. And in in my opinion, until we fund public education the way that we should to be able to make a a true assessment, uh, you know, we are doing a disservice to the greater masses by taking money away and sending it to private school. And certainly in a way that lacks accountability, lacks any conversation about need. We still talked about weighted study. Well, this goes completely contrary to the notion of putting money where it's needed the most. So I I think that we can always have a healthy conversation about providing options for our families, but they have to be real options for everyone, not just those that have the means to make up the difference. Well, we actually are out of time. I think Michelle's in the same boat I am. I still have like 17 questions left that we wanted to ask when you get the speaker here. Uh, I want to talk about school safety. I want to talk about all kinds. Of, I hope you'll come back, uh, Mr. Speaker, sure. uh, and, and maybe in a couple months or so, Thank and, you. and we'll talk about it again. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. All right. Michelle, thanks for helping out. And when we come back, Elizabeth Thompson will join me and and we'll have a spirited discussion, I assure you. Stick around. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. I'm joined now by the most reliable number two in the history of number twos, Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor of the Nevada Independent. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, what an introduction. Yeah, I'm going to change it every time. Can you do that every week? I will will ratchet up the gushing every week if I could possibly do that. Uh, So we're going to talk about a a couple of topics. Uh, uh, One of them is this blow-up between uh, Dean Heller and and Jackie Rosen on Iran. But first, let's talk about what really is the most significant news of the week here, uh, not just in Clark County, actually, but probably for Nevada, which is finally the Clark County School District has chosen a leader for the fifth largest district. Uh, and as I mentioned earlier in headlines, it did not come easy. Uh, what's, what's your take on that whole thing? It was so unseemly yesterday, this pre- it turned into a shouting match behind closed doors between the trustees is how much that process yesterday devolved in which the trustees were 
showing up to essentially nominate and vote on one of these six superintendent candidates that had made it to the to the final round. And the, I mean, we're used to trustee meetings being a little contentious and we have some strong personalities on there. And I'm not against people disagreeing in, in public. I'd, I'd actually prefer that it happen in public than behind closed doors. But it was sort of still stunning to me that, you know, the guy who was pushed forth first, Mike Barton, who see, and he's the chief academic officer of the district, by the way, so he would be what we would call an insider candidate. He had the support of Garvey uh, and Young and Child, I think, and a lot of public support initially at that meeting. The momentum sort of seemed to be going uh, his way, but then this argument broke out over whether the lobbying efforts for him had been too aggressive. Some of the trustees indicated that they felt not just pressured, but coerced. How embarrassing is that? Look what you're saying. These are elected officials that they would say that they're elected officials. So they get lobbied. They're going to be soft lobbied. They're going to be hard lobbied. Maybe there were some aggressive lobbying, but to to use that as a reason not to vote. This is what we're left with, Elizabeth. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it really, it bothered me that we weren't having more of a conversation about the merits, and we were arguing about a process question of the people's, you know, feelings. They were upset about the the way it went. I, I sort of, you know, as someone who helped bring a child through the school district, because of where things are in the district and what Skorkowski's done and what's happened at the legislature and the big reorg effort, uh, you know, I'll I'll just say it. I supported a candidate from the inside. I thought there was a really good argument to be made for having someone intimately familiar with the inner workings of this district to stay, to you know, to, to jump into that position. But in any case, he was voted down and then things got really ugly and then fast forward and now we have Jesus Jara from Orange County in Florida uh, who, if he makes it through the contract negotiations, will be the, the new superintendent. Well, I think the point that you're making, too, is that this was didn't even seem to be done on the merits. I don't know. Mike Barton, I've heard only good things about Mike Barton. It looks like he lost out because, oh, horror of horrors, he had too many people there and they were loud and, 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 and aggressive. And the fact that a board would bring a guy up for such an important post and have it go down four to three, and then they would break and go, as you mentioned, into the back room and start yelling at each other and then come out. And they and, and uh, Mr. Jar is now being brought in on a split vote four to two with, again, this boggles my mind, Elizabeth, a, a trustee abstaining. Linda Young abstained on the most important vote she will cast all year because she thinks the process was disrespectful or, or, or some other or some nonsense. I mean, it's embarrassing for us as a community. But I really think the larger issue, and I really would like to get your take on this, and, and we have not talked about this. I think this job is actually sets up the person, no matter how good they are, to fail. It's almost an impossible job now. The district is so large. I mentioned fifth largest. It's got a majority-minority population now. All kinds of issues. Uh, What are there like? I think the last number I heard was like, there's like two dozen or more languages spoken. These teachers are in such a difficult uh, uh, position that how can you possibly be a quote-unquote successful superintendent thrown into all those problems that you have with Clark County and with a school board that uh, of, I think the clinical word is nuts. Yeah, it's it's tough. I mean, between the funding issues and uh, ongoing arbitration with CCEA, which the next one comes up in June. So presumably uh, Mr. Jar will be dealing with that. And then we're still in the middle of this reorg. And then, 
yes, there's ELO programs, and then the governor has set up all these special programs in the, you know, throughout the state. So there's a learning curve, is what I'm saying as well, not just coming in and navigating the politics and figuring out how it all works, but but a learning curve that has to happen because he is from outside. Maybe that's a good thing. I don't know. Everyone speaks highly of him, and maybe he is a great person to at least oversee the ELL portion of our uh, school system because he himself was an immigrant with his parents from Venezuela. He learned English in the public schools in Florida himself, so I, I think I like that, that, that he's a recipient and a beneficiary of a public school system that made sure he knew how to speak English and, and look where he's he's risen to. But yes, it's, you know, I wonder if he isn't already asking himself, what did I get myself into? And I wonder if he really knew all the difficulties and ins and outs and the politics. Uh, and, and what happened yesterday, John, I think is doubling or tripling or quadrupling down on an argument that's made many times that perhaps the trustees, even if some of them are elected, should be part, at least in part appointed, possibly by the governor, because it would behoove us, I think, to have some professional education experts on that board of trustees, people who could be trusted not to let emotions rule the day, and people who could be trusted, frankly, to do their homework and do more than a 20-minute interview with each of the candidates, which apparently is what happened, other than the obvious, obvious interviews with peripheral people who have worked with these superintendents in the past. The the, pro- the process to me is just a- appalling. I mean, this is one of the most important jobs in the state, as you pointed out. And, and it seems like very little time, effort and work went into making sure that we got the absolute best candidate. Uh, I want to move on to our other topic, but I do want to say that I that I believe that the, the trustee should been a, be appointed for a long time. And, and I really hope that that has a serious discussion uh, this time. The governor brought it up last time and then essentially dropped the idea. He mentioned it in his state of the state and essentially dropped it. But before we move on, I also do want to say I'm not I'm not suggesting that all of these people on this on this board are buffoons. I've known Carolyn Edwards for a long time. She really cares about education. She's a smart woman. But you, what the point that you made is the app one. Some minimum credentials being needed. You know what? It's nice if you're a parent or, or, or you're a caring mom or dad or you've been on the PTA. That should not be automatically qualify you despite your good intentions to be elected to the school board. But sometimes uh, it can be enough. Anyhow, you and I could talk about this for an entire podcast. Hey, maybe just me and Elizabeth on a podcast. <laughs> maybe that might we be will. Good. So let's switch gears dramatically and talk about the other topic you and I both want to talk about. And we had a story by Humberto Sanchez, our our DC uh, correspondent uh, about the Iran deal and and what's going on now on it uh, be- becoming an issue in the U.S. Senate race, maybe the most watched Senate race in the country, the only one where a Republican incumbent is running in a state won by Hillary Clinton, where Dean Heller uh, started this discussion essentially in the Senate race by going after Jackie Rosen uh, in, in a very pointed way, asking on Twitter whether she st- stood with Iran or stood with Israel, which sparked a lot of I thought nonsense on Twitter. What a shocker that that, that, <laughs> that he that he was being anti-Semitic, which I reject uh, completely. But uh, you know, to frame the argument that way really seemed like this is this race. I mean, we already knew it was going to be nasty, but that is a really nasty thing to do. And it just this is one of the things that drives me nuts every campaign season, you know, to to frame it in this context of, well, you're either for us or against us, right? You're with Iran or you're with Israel. There's no other way to see it. 
like all issues of international policy and, and politics and international uh, security and national security, it's a complex issue. Rabbi uh, Tektil, who was quoted in our piece, himself said that even within the Jewish community here in Nevada, there are diverse opinions uh, about that Iran deal that to curb the nuclear program that took place in 2015. Many, uh, G- many members of the Jewish community supported it. Many did not. Some of them supported it because they favored an effort towards diplomacy. Many of them didn't support it because they didn't trust uh, Iran. Those are both reasonable positions. And Jackie Rosen herself, when you look at her record, you know, said at one time that she thought that was probably the best deal that could be gotten at the time. She wasn't the only one who uh, said that. But then she also, I think, in an interview with you, had some caveats uh, to that. Does that constitute a a real flip-flop or does it just show some nuance on a very complicated issue? She's on the record a half a dozen times definitely standing up for Israel's security, Israel's protection, a nuclear missile defense program in Israel, making sure we're not giving either money or planes to Iran that are being used against Israel or in international terrorism. So she's many, many things on the record for Rosen that I think show her as staunchly pro-Israel, definitely not a friend of Iran. But I, you know, in my opinion, a person's allowed to have some nuanced thoughts about something, you know, and to try to box her that way on this particular issue. I have to be frank, I think is a little silly. She's the rabbi of, she was the rabbi of the largest synagogue in in Nevada, right? At one time. She she was the head of a synagogue, which adds something to all of this. I I mean, I don't know what world you're living in. You think nuances are going to be allowed during a campaign season. (laughs) Silly me. (laughs) At all. But but I do think that there are two separate issues here. Forget about the Irondale and whether it was a good thing or not. There are very strong arguments on both sides of this. And people do feel very passionately about it. Donald Trump, of course, has made this uh, uh, an issue by saying it's the worst deal ever made, but then has not clearly been made it clear whether he's going to pull out or not. And he set the May 12th deadline, uh, I, I believe. Uh, I think it's completely legitimate for Dean Heller to say to Jackie Rosen, listen, you said to John Ralston, you would have voted against this, but then you said it was the best deal that Obama could have made. And then you said you would have, uh, you supported certifying it recertifying it, excuse me, which I think is a different time. There's a temporal issue here. You can't have been against it, but still say you would recertify it. But if if Heller wanted to make that case that Jackie Rosen has been inconstant on this, I'm not, I think she can defend herself, but I think that's a legitimate issue. But to to do it without any nuance and say you stand with Iran instead of Israel, to someone who is a Jew, that is is really uh, going to going to cut to the bone to someone who was ahead of a synagogue. He didn't have to do it that way is all I'm saying. He could have created a real debate over this. Yes, Heller's been consistent. He's been he's been against it. Good for him. Maybe he has good arguments. I'd love to see them actually debate that instead of, are you with Iran or are you with Israel? Well, this is one of the problems, right? Because asking her whether she's with Iran or Israel fit into a 140-character tweet. And that's how the campaign decided to go at this and, and to, to roll this out. I also want to point out that I find it laugh out loud worthy that the NRSC was out immediately saying that Rosen's flip-flop on this issue disqualifies her from the U.S. Senate. Really? 
we have Dean Heller on record flip-flopping more than once on the same issue and flip-flopping on more than one issue in his tenure in the Senate. So if Rosen is disqualified for the Senate, then so is Dean Heller, and maybe we need another candidate. The NRSC, of course, is the National Republican Senatorial Committee, in case people don't know, which is which is the, the D.C. organ that come out and pummels uh, Rosen uh, all, all the time. Uh, of course, you're right. And for Dean Heller to call anybody a flip-flopper, but then, and we need to wrap this up because I know we don't want to go on so long. We could talk about this issue that I'm about to raise for an entire podcast, this issue of flip-flopping. There are real flip-flops where people, for instance, clearly once was pro-choice, now is pro-life, like the president. Uh, (laughs) uh, Then there are other things that, as you point out, and correctly so, there are nuance. Sometimes people evolve in in their thinking. For instance, Harry Reid was pummeled for being essentially against immigration reform at one time. He changed on that. Did he change because of the Hispanic population of Nevada or did he change because he he had personal experience? I don't know, but that's that's less clear. To just accuse someone of being a flip-flopper on issues when, you know, you and I uh, have evolved on issues probably in our life. Why can't politicians? But there's no quarter given, especially during a campaign. That's, that, that is a truth of modern campaigning and maybe it's always been uh, the I'm not as experienced as you are, John, in covering. Younger, uh, you mean? You're younger. I was trying to find a polite way to. That's okay. No uh, need to be polite <laughs> to, to say it. But um, yeah, I, I agree with you. But the, I mean, it's unfortunate because it doesn't help the voters understand what's really going on and where people really stand and why they stand there, which is one of the reasons we do this podcast and one of the reasons many political reporters and commentators do what they do because it's our job to try to help people cut through the Twitter and other rhetoric and figure out, well, you know, what is true? And if there was a reversal of opinion, why? And and I'm looking forward to debates between these and other candidates so that hopefully the voters will have an opportunity to do just that. And, and I'm glad you brought that up and we'll wrap with this. That's one of the reasons uh, that I wanted to start the Nevada Independent. And, and I know you immediately, the first person I talked to about doing it and, and you were interested in doing it, is this is what we tried to do. For instance, on this, Humberto Sanchez, we gave him a few days to work on this to get the entire history. So we could not just, we, we, we could present what had been said by Heller and what had what Rosen's uh, evolution or, or, or not or nuanced positions are. It's why we're doing explainers of issues. It's why we're doing on the record pieces. Do I have any illusions that as many people will read this as we'll see uh, a tweet or, or, or worse, a 30-second ad to selling this? I don't. But we can't give up. And that's why we consider uh, what we're doing so important. And uh, uh, you and I, uh, I think, both believe that uh, th- this is the best thing that we've done in journalism. Absolutely. And I, I hope our readers agree with us. I hope our readers in Nevada um, feel that way. I think many of them do. I think you're right, and I, I hope you're right. Elizabeth, not much disagreement today, so uh, you, you can uh, – I hesitate to say this. You can stay employed for, for another, another week. week. Yes. <laughs> Thanks for coming on, as Thanks. always. Right, a reminder to everybody, our podcast can also be heard on KUNV, the university's radio station, 8.30 p.m. on Thursdays. We love partnering with UNLV, and we will continue to do so here and elsewhere. That is all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think, as always. Ideas, criticism, even praise. Yes, praise. Email us at ideas at the Check out the site. If you haven't already, the NevadaIndependent.com. As I said before, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell anyone you see on the street to check it out. Please rate us, as I said earlier, on iTunes or Google Play and Stitcher and subscribe. 
Uh, I want to thank Jason Frierson, the speaker, again for being here. I also want to thank, as always, our wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. We got today, Elizabeth, we got the grand poobah of KUNV, Dave Norse, helping us uh, produce this podcast. We really appreciate uh, all of Dave's support of this podcast. Always many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer, who makes us all sound podcast smooth she is good is she not uh is john ralston podcast smooth that's your question for the week no no okay all right first vote is in thanks thanks again for listening everybody i'm john ralston thanks for listening to indy matters we'll talk to you next week